the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday afternoon program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer, and you should be safe, which is what we want to do. Hey, before we get to the questions that have been sent in and we await your phone calls, uh, two quick things. One, tonight I'm going to be teaching uh, the second half of 2 Kings chapter 2, sort of the kickoff of Elisha's ministry. And then, of course, uh, because tomorrow is Thursday, Paula will be live in studio uh, with us on the date day edition of the program. So uh, if you need any encouragement at all, she is really your girl. Well, she's my girl, but you know what I mean. Uh, She'll be able to do that. So that's tomorrow's program. Okay, let me get to questions that have been sent in. We'll start with these. This one is from uh, Ariana from our email inbox. Uh, Hello, Pastor Ron. My question comes from Romans 14 and 15. These chapters talk about, first, not criticizing others. If someone chooses to eat meat or someone chooses to not eat meat. In chapter 14, then it goes into not eating meat if it causes someone else to stumble. I know that these chapters are not just talking about eating meat, but more talking about exercising our freedom to do things, but also being careful not to allow Uh, our freedom in doing things to cause others with a sensitive conscience to stumble. There's someone in my life that has a sensitive conscience on certain things, but sometimes I have a hard time with understanding if it is more of a religious attitude that comes from a Catholic background or if it is something that she genuinely struggles with. How do we live at peace with others that seem to not have peace in their own lives, especially when it seems like every effort you make to meet them is not perfect enough? This person is a believer, but she's also an older woman, so I know I need to be careful not to correct her harshly. Um, Ariana, thank you very much for the, the the kindness that comes through in that. Let me talk first about just the idea of freedom in general. You know, the Apostle Paul says that the very best use of our freedom is to surrender it for the benefit of somebody else. Now think about it. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
Though he was God, though he could have called down 12 legions of angels, Jesus surrendered his freedom on the cross because he considered that you and I were worth more than his freedom. Now, if we humans would take that attitude, and that seems to be what Philippians chapter 2 tells us, our attitude or our mindset should be the same as his. Um, I think if we would just be more willing to give up our freedom for the benefit of other believers, then it wouldn't be a situation where we're arguing about things or debating about these kind of things. Uh, I'm a big freedom person, Ariana. You should know that by now. I'm a big uh, use your freedom, enjoy your freedom. Galatians 5.1 says it's for freedom that we've been set free. But to use my freedom to do something that would cause somebody else to stumble is to really abuse or misuse my freedom. So I, I think that's really important for us to understand. Remember, we're free, but our ministry is to minister to other people. So instead of judging somebody because they eat something I don't eat or they, they're able to do something that I don't do, um, um, you know, that's between them and the Lord, just like the decisions I make is between uh, me and the Lord. And, and we've all got to be prepared to live with that. You know, uh, I've had this conversation this last week uh, with other pastors because somebody was asking, um, um, what do they think about a pastor who drinks? We actually had a pretty well-known Calvary Chapel pastor out of California uh, who made a big deal online about, uh, um, did it in a message and online, so it got published pretty far and wide about, hey, it's no big deal if you drink it a celebratory thing, if you're at a wedding or or, or something else and they're toasting, then, then of course, why wouldn't you drink it? And, you know, the answer is we wouldn't drink it because we're setting an example. Now, our example is not telling other people they can't drink. I would never sit at the table with somebody else and say, you can't drink because I don't drink. Um, but um, if they would ask me, and this happens uh, regularly, often for me and Paula, um, people will ask for, oh, do, you, do you do you want a drink? And oh no, we, we'll not. We're fine. We're we're fine just with water. And and they go ahead and order it, or maybe they feel a little uncomfortable ordering it, so they don't. We let them know, hey, that's between you and the Lord. If 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 you feel like that's okay, I'll do it. But for me to exercise my freedom to drink. When somebody might see me as Pastor Ron, well, well, Pastor Ron drinks, so it's okay if I drink. And who knows what their background is or what the situation has been in their home. So I think, Ariana, using our freedom, the best example is how can we best honor the Lord with it? Now, regarding your situation with this, this older woman, um, when you're with her, then you don't want to do anything that causes her to stumble. But you also don't need to get dragged into conversations about it. I think this, if, if this woman is a friend, this is a great opportunity for you to explore. You know, you say you have a sensitive conscience about these things. So let's talk about where does it come from. And, and, and you know, there's an opportunity to teach, not demand, not make them feel guilty, not make them feel like you're judging them, but just an opportunity to teach. And I would end that conversation by saying, you know what, as long as you're uncomfortable, when we're together, I'm not going to have this or I'm not going to do that, whatever this thing you're talking about is. Um, but, but you open a door for conversation. And, you know, too often we feel that we almost have an obligation to challenge people when we think they're wrong about something. Uh, I've had this conversation on the radio program many times with uh, people who worship on, on Saturdays. And you know what? I, I can't say they're wrong. I can't say you shouldn't do that because the Bible says, New Testament says, we esteem all days alike. And if somebody wants to do that, then they have the freedom to do it as long as they're not judging me. And that's the conversation you can have with this woman. You know, I don't share your conviction about this or about that. And it goes beyond what the Bible says is sin. I think we can all agree that if the Bible says something is sin, then it's sin. Um, and we're not going to do that. However, I also think that um, uh, somebody else expecting you um, to um, live your life according to her rules or her convictions 
is unreasonable. So it's just a matter of, of talking to them. I think if you're, again, if you're friends, then this is something that can be talked about in love. And, um, and perhaps you can be a source of help or encouragement. But if it's not something that can be talked about uh, without creating friction, then you don't need to talk about it. Just don't uh, enjoy whatever it is that you're talking about in terms of this particular freedom. Um, we live at peace as far as it depends on us. We live at peace with people. But we also shouldn't be in the habit of limiting our freedom just because somebody else looks down on it. In their presence, that's one thing. I don't need to, to do this or I don't need to do that um, when I'm with you. But you need to know that that I have no such conviction, so these are the kind of things that I do on my own. The problem with legalism, Ariana, is that once you give in to it, it never stops. Literally, it never stops. And um, uh, legalists are evangelists for whatever it is they're legalistic about and we don't want them to steal our joy uh, nor trample on our freedom Um, so react to the relationship accordingly thank you for the question more importantly thank you for your heart here is a question this one is from Margaret from our email inbox hi Pastor On I was listening to last Wednesday's radio show. A question was asked if the Bible was the living word of God. Since God inspired the word, um, that makes it living in my mind. I know that God breathed the breath of life into Adam, a breath that in my mind was so awesome that it will live forever in the rest of the human race. God created the animals but didn't breathe his breath into them. So is that the reason the animals don't live forever? Uh, also, there, so there's a bunch of questions here. So let me start with those, and then I'll, I'll, I'll expand. Um, yeah, the Bible it says it's living and active. Hebrews chapter four. Uh, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So yeah, it's it's alive. That's really important. Uh, Jesus is the living Word of God. The Bible is the written Word of God. And uh, if it's not written by God, if it isn't perfect and inerrant. Uh, then we don't have any standard at all. So I agree with you. It is um, God-breathed. Literally, the passage uh, in Paul writing to Timothy is that it's God's breath pushing the pins of men. Uh, They weren't in a trance or anything like that. And it it seems most of them um, didn't seem to be aware that they were writing Scripture or, or God's living word. Uh, Peter acknowledges that Paul's epistles carry the weight of Scripture, so Peter might have had a little bit of insight. But the reality is that um, it is alive, and, and we need to uh, to do that. Regarding animals, um, God gave us the breath of life. We were the ones created in the image of God, which essentially means that we were created with the freedom to choose Just like God chooses us, we get to choose him or reject him. Uh, And the other part of being made in his image is that we're all eternal beings. Uh, When we come out of our mother's womb from that point forward, we are going to be alive somewhere forever. And um, that is not said of animals. Animals are given uh, by God for our enjoyment. Um, We're not here for them. They're here for us. Um, any of us who have had animals in the past, we we loved our animals and we, we know how special they can be. That's just God saying, I love you so much. Here's, here's something that will really make your life richer. And, and so that's what animals do. Now, regarding the conversations about eternal life, do people who don't choose to accept Jesus Christ as Savior have new bodies too? Will they be improved physical beings in torment forever and ever? Um, Margaret, uh, we don't know. Uh, we, we know we, who have been born again, will have physical, resurrected, glorified bodies. Uh, our body will be just like his is. But we don't have that um, information regarding the eternally dead. Um, we know they are awake. They are conscious. They are in constant torment, torment, torment that will never end. But as to the tenth of their body, we don't know if they'll get a new body as well. I tend to think that probably it's just their 
spirits that are going to be there and be tormented forever and ever. So, uh, but but again, there, there's no way to to justify my answer biblically uh, at all. So, um, they're going to be real. It's going to be physical, and there's going to be t- torment and pain. But but whether they have new bodies or just their spirit uh, will go, I don't know. And then finally, she says. Uh, please check my reasoning here. When I'm asked a question, and a seven-year-old has lots of them, I know what you're talking about there. She says, I don't want to misguide them. I love that Jesus answers so many of my questions through your program. I don't even have to ask myself. He usually has someone else do the asking. Thanks. Your show is a huge blessing. Margaret, thank you. That's very kind of you. Appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Juan. Hi, Pastor Ron. Are pastors allowed to marry non-Christians? Now, when this question came across, I've got a Pastor Juan on my staff. And by the way, today is his birthday. So, uh, Pastor Juan, if you're listening, happy birthday. But by now, you should know pastors aren't allowed to marry non-Christians. I know it's not from you, but... No, pastors, no, but no Christians allowed to marry an unbeliever. Now, we ignore that part of the Bible, just like we ignore so many other parts. But one, nobody, no Christian is supposed to marry an unbeliever. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It, it's almost as though he's written us a picture, and yet we can't follow it. Now, here's the problem. Uh, Christians and some pastors don't pay any attention. And the result is a life of pain. So uh, the answer is no. Pastors are not, they should not, and they should know they're, they're, they're not uh, allowed to marry non-Christians. And they also need to know, Juan, that, that if they do, uh, the recipe for pain in their life is enormous. Just enormous. And that also applies to everyone else. But if you've been listening to the program on, I get so many questions about marrying unbelievers that it's clear that people simply don't pay attention to what the Word says. God's trying to save us pain. He's trying to keep us at a place where uh, our lives can be lived fruitfully for His glory. And that just doesn't happen when we step outside of God's will and marry an unbeliever. It just never happens. It was a, a young woman, young to me. Everybody's young to me. Uh, she's not a young woman. Uh, not a, not a. She's a in her fifties, maybe sixties by now. Um, but but uh, she came to me one day and she said, "Well, I, I'm I'm going to marry. I'm go, dating somebody, and we've fallen for each other. And I just want to know what's it, what's the Bible say about marrying? He's not a believer." And I said, "You can't do it." You just cannot do it. And um, she didn't come back to church for a while. And I knew what that meant. She went ahead and married him anyway. And when she married him uh, and she finally came back, she said, oh, Pastor Ron, you are so right. I'm, I'm going to take your advice. I said, what, you married him, didn't you? And she said, yeah, so, so you said I shouldn't, so now I'm going to divorce him. I said, no, you can't do that. You promised Jesus that you would stay married. I told you not to do it. You did anyway. Now you have to live with the consequences of it. And and she was so taken aback. She just thought I was going to give her my blessing. Okay, finally, you came to your senses. Get rid of the guy. And, and when I didn't, she didn't. As it turned out, um, he then came to church because he had to meet the guy who said, don't marry him. And then when she came back, said, don't divorce him. And he ended up getting saved in the process. So so uh, it worked out, although th- their marriage didn't work out. You just can't disobey what the Lord says. So one, we know better. When you ask the question, you know better. Here is a question. This one is from Anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I get a daily email from Jeffrey Grider. I hope I'm saying the name right. And today he stated that the NIV version of the Bible has destroyed the deity and blood of Jesus Christ and that the only true word of God is the King James Version. What is your opinion of this message? First of all, get off of his mailing list. This guy, he's an actor. 
he, he fancies himself as an end times uh, aficionado. Uh, and he's just way, way out there. So get off of his mailing list. This is not somebody that you want to be listening to. Uh, certainly, you don't want to be taking any counsel from him. Now, relative to the, the King James only people, and this is just proof that this Jeffrey Grider uh, doesn't know how to think. I mean, it's just the, 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 the ability to reason is gone in some of these people. They get on this high horse and they, they lose their ability to think. I want you to think about something. If the King James Version is the only true word of God, what it means is overwhelming. It means, frankly, that there is no authorized Bible in any other language. King James isn't in Spanish. It's not in German. It's not in Dutch. It's not in French. Um, there, there are other versions. So basically what he's saying is only people that can read English and have the King James only have the Word of God. And we know that's not true. Secondly, it means, if you think about this practically, King James was 1611 production, and it means that there was no Word of God prior to 1611. And we know that is silly. Now, I get so frustrated because what people are doing is taking a hobby horse. Uh, The King James is the only word of God. And they're trying to impose that on the rest of us. And honestly, I'm saying this as a guy who loves the King James Version. I say this every time I get asked this question. Uh, I grew up in the King James as a Christian. Uh, I've memorized a, a lot of the King James Version because I have uh, impaired vision uh, when I can't see my notes um, uh, when I'm teaching and I'm quoting Scripture. I'm quoting King James even though I'm teaching out of the 1984 NIV. Uh, and uh, so, so I love the King James Version of the Bible. However... It's not even the best New Testament translation. Uh, The best New Testament translation, in my view, is clearly the 1984 NIV. Now, I don't like the 2011 NIV, but the 1984 NIV. And um, uh, typically, when somebody's teaching out of the King James, they'll say, well, you know, the original language says, and then they'll quote what the 84 NIV has. So, um, as much as I love the King James... It's not the best or most accurate New Testament translation. The idea that the publishers of the NIV or any of the other modern translations, including the New King James, that, that they they trash as well. Uh, nobody tries to, to destroy the deity of Jesus Christ or diminish the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. The passages of Scripture that are, are left out or missing out of the, the newer translations, every one of them, at the bottom of the page includes them. If they're trying to hide it from you, they wouldn't do that. It's simply that they're translating a different set of manuscripts. The King James Version, also the New King James Version, um, they are um, um, translating the the uh, majority text or the Textus Receptus. The newer translations are translating the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are older and some think better because they're older. I don't necessarily agree with that, but uh, they're translating different manuscripts. And and both sets are faithful translation of the manuscripts they're translating. So that's all. There's not necessarily good or bad, uh, but, but it's just different manuscripts, different translations. I think the biggest problem with the King James Version of the Bible is that it it speaks uh, uh, in an English that we don't use anymore. So many of the old English words don't mean the same thing. Uh, language is static. It isn't static. I mean, it's alive, and it changes. And I think, uh, Anonymous, that um, uh, we have to change with the language because we want to communicate. So when we say something, we want people to understand the intent of the author. 
And if language has changed, somebody who's 20 years or 30 years younger than me, um, words don't mean exactly the same thing as they did when I was growing up. And so the language changes and the translations change as well. So Jeffrey Greider, get him, he's an actor, get him off of your email inbox and uh, I think it'll be better for you. Thank you for that question. Uh, how are we doing on time? Oh, okay, we're just about a half a minute, I think. Um, let me remind you again that Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the program. Uh, it is the date day edition of the program. Also, our phones have been quiet uh, in the last oh, six or seven days, so we'd love your phone calls, uh, 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm waiting for the music, and the music isn't here yet, so let me see if I have a very quick question. Uh, Alberta says, do you believe King Saul was saved? Or do, Okay, I just got one minute, so my first indications were wrong. Well, there we go. Alberta, I'll get to your question when we come back on the other side of the break. Oh, well. A uh, little awkward. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Okay, we are back and we got, I hope, all the miscommunications resolved. 340-9585. Here's a question from Alberta. She says, do you believe King Saul was saved or did he lose his salvation? Uh, Alberta, there's no indication at all that, that he believed in God. I mean, obviously, uh, he knew about God, and he was um, sort of the default choice of God. God gave him every opportunity. God demonstrated his power through him. Um, but, but King Saul's heart never belonged to the Lord. So I don't believe there's any indication at all that King Saul was saved. Um, and and the, the concept of losing salvation has always been foreign to God. Um, if you are saved, if you ever really were saved, you still are saved. And, and at times when we turn away from God, it's not God throwing his hands up and saying, after all I've done for him or for her, this is the way they thank me, I'm done with them. Um, so um, uh, remember, a Jewish concept of salvation was far different than our concept uh, having been secured uh, by the person of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, um, King Saul, don't think we're going to see him in heaven. Uh, he started great, uh, and he blew it. Unbelief. Miguel says, Pastor Ron, if our bodies are a temple of God, why do you say it's okay to tattoo or pierce them. Because the, the idea that our bodies are a temple of God, the way you're understanding it, is completely missing the point. Uh, the Holy Spirit lives in us. In that sense, we are a temple of God. But remember, there's nothing holy about the flesh. There's nothing. In my flesh is no good thing, we're told. And so, um, the, the art that we do to our bodies... Um, has nothing to do with the person of the Holy Spirit who, figuratively speaking, lives in our heart and seals us with a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance. But but, but our flesh can't be redeemed. Um, it's wasting away, Paul says, outwardly. Uh, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. But, but what we do to the tent that we now live in has nothing to do with with uh, with holiness, it has nothing to do with uh, offending the Holy Spirit. Um, if you like body art, go ahead and get it. I I I personally love it. I just don't like pain, and my fear of pain is one out over my like of 
body art. Um, honestly, Miguel, I cringe when I see people pierced. Noses and eyebrows and belly buttons. I, 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 I don't understand women who get their belly buttons pierced. I mean, the, the the opportunity for infection and so many different issues. So, so I, I, I really don't like that at all. But you know what? None of those people, Miguel, who do that have asked me what my opinion is, nor do they care. So that's between them and the Lord. This is a Romans fourteen twenty three thing. If you, uh, if your conscience isn't okay with tattoos or piercings, then you shouldn't get it. But we should not ever insist that others. Um, take our counsel. Um, you know, it, it's we shouldn't judge them, nor should we even have an opinion about it. It's kind of I, we we humans we have to have an opinion about everything, and honestly, we want people to agree with us, uh, and and you know that's just nonsense. So, um, it is okay to get a tattoo. It is okay to pierce yourself. Uh, although my lip will go up if you do, and I see it, but but uh, tattoos are great. And by the way, just just for discussion purposes, um, I love talking to people with tattoos because I can use their tattoos to get an inroad to talk to them about Jesus. At the gym, all the time, I'll ask guys, hey, tell me, I'll ask them usually something like, oh, man, that tattoo, that had to hurt. Oh, it really hurt. And so we'll have a conversation. And then I'll ask them if there's a story. We got a lady in our church who who has some tattoos that tell a story. And she's used that to share Christ so many times with people. And um, uh, people that, that were tatted up with vile stuff before they got saved. Um, it's an opportunity for them to say to somebody um, who, who is curious, um, you know, that's who I used to be, but thank God Jesus has redeemed me from uh, all of that. So, um, you know, it, you can tell a story. I've got a son who is a believer, and he's pretty blasted. And, and his tattoos are not attractive, some of them, and they're certainly not godly. And he was embarrassed by him. And I said, Ronnie, here's how you look at it now. You just say to somebody, yeah, this is a reflection of who I used to be. But thank God, through Jesus Christ, that's not who I am anymore. And he's had opportunities to share as a result of that as well. So um, talk to people about their tattoos. They get them because they want attention. And they'll open up and start talking to you about them. I've never had somebody who wouldn't talk to me about it. That's the purpose of getting it. And they spend a lot of money, so it's an opportunity for them to to uh, enjoy. So thanks, Miguel, for the question. Here's a question anonymously. Uh, what connection is there between social media platforms and trans identity issues? Uh, anonymous so much, more than, more than I can communicate to you. Um, um, Tinder in particular. Uh, is is they they're evangelists for trans transformations, trans transformations. Um, uh, there there will be pressure, peer pressure, group pressure, um, um, negative and positive. Um, but but uh, Tinder is being used by. Um, I said Tinder. It's Tumblr, not Tinder. It's Tumblr. I'm sorry. Um, t- Tumblr is being used by um, the enemy. Um, so, you know, that's... I think there's a big connection. Whenever you're getting pressured um, and or being applauded for doing something that the crowd wants you to do, um, that's a big, big connection. Also... I'm told by people who know that anime encourages, uh, especially girl to male um, uh, transitions, and is um, at the root really of a lot of these young girls, especially who are uh, suddenly gender dysphoric. And and well, I think I was born in the wrong body. Um, anime has encouraged that, and a lot of those people. 
uh, have been um, anime devotees for a very, very long time. Now, that's not the only ones, but social media now is is um, a, a propaganda platform, and um, we need to keep our kids off. And I say that knowing that Christian parents won't do that. I say that knowing, and this hurts my heart, but I say that knowing Christian parents won't keep their kids off these websites or these um, social media platforms. They just won't do it. They, they don't want to, to argue with their kids. Everybody else is doing it. Uh, they're convinced, well, it won't happen to my kid. Uh, I can promise you, especially your young girls, um, they are being recruited and brainwashed into gender dysphoria. And it's usually happening at a time in their life when they're uncomfortable with their bodies anyway. Um, things are changing. They like to rebel. They like the attention it gets them. And um, again, I want to repeat this. Even as I say that, Christian parents will not keep their children away from the social media platforms. They just won't do it. I have no idea why Christian parents, I'm not talking about unsafe people at all. I don't expect them to think like we should think. But Christian parents are allowing their children to be seduced by the devil. And it's ruining lives. And there's no justification for it. And yet we justify it over and over and over. Why having a phone is a birthright to a teenager Young men, and I'm talking about really young kids, um, who have phones, are being addicted to pornography. Their view of sexual relationships is completely distorted and will never be the same. We're losing the innocence of grade school and teenagers. And it's not something that comes back. And people simply won't listen. So uh, anonymous, there's a big connection. And uh, for Christian parents to allow their children access um, to the devil so that he can destroy them and destroy their faith uh, makes no sense to me. And I can't can't say it enough. So, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there. I gave a name of a of a, a young woman yesterday, Helena Kirshner, um, who you can listen to, and she got caught up in all of that. Now, she's not a Christian. She got caught up in all of that, and she's got YouTube videos out that that t- t- detail pretty specifically the seduction process and, and what got her, and she started taking hormones, and, and um, um, she's been delivered from it, but... Uh, all she needs now is Jesus, but but at least some of the young people might listen to her because it's not coming from a Christian perspective. Three four zero ninety five eighty five Manuel wants to know what does mourning M O U R N I N G look like as Jesus speaks of it in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Manuel. Um, the Beatitudes, we have to understand what the Beatitudes are all about. The, the Beatitudes are a deeper dive into the Ten Commandments and, in general, the law of God. Jesus is telling Jews that apart from him, the only way to be saved is to be perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And since we can't do that, Jesus is saying, here's the standard. We've got the letter of the law and the Ten Commandments, but we got the spirit behind the letter of the law. Uh, you have heard that it is written, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Jesus said, if you look at a woman in lust, then you're guilty of adultery. And now obviously, if you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, you're not guilty of the act. But what Jesus is saying, it's the same thing, that we lust in our hearts. It's the same thing in terms of separating us from the kingdom of God. So, mourning, blessed are those who mourn. We need to mourn over the condition of our souls. We need to mourn over the fact that we actually like to sin. We need to mourn over the fact that when we um, are convicted of sin, 
many times we don't repent quickly or completely. Um, mourning over the condition, how how unlike God we are. And that mourning, it's not to make us feel crummy about ourselves, but that mourning is to drive us to the feet of Jesus so that he can fill us with his righteousness. So that's what mourning, mourning over the sinful condition in my life, mourning over the, the sin in this world, mourning over the fact that Jesus' heart breaks when people die separated from him, those are the things that we need to mourn over. And Manuel, all one has to do is look around at the world that we live in and we see these things. The question that I just had about gender dysphoria, um, we should mourn over that. People are being seduced by the enemy of their souls. And so mourning over that, instead, far too many of us, even as Christians, recipients of God's grace, Um, We will acknowledge the evil in this world, but then we still participate in it and we won't, frankly, take a stand against it publicly because we're more concerned about what people think about us than what God thinks about us. So that's what mourning looks like. It's not that he wants you to walk around in sackcloth and ashes. It's not that he wants you to walk around with no self-esteem at all. Oh, I'm just a worm. My heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately so above all things. That's so he wants us to, to, to revel in, in, in what he's offered to us. And we've got to come to the end of ourselves before that can happen. So, Emmanuel, that's what mourning looks like um, as Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes. Please, everybody keep in mind that the Beatitudes are not something that we're supposed to look at and say, okay, well, then uh, this is how I'm going to live. Uh, that's not what we're supposed to do. Um, we're supposed to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're supposed to say, there's no way I can do that, and then run to the source of mercy, Jesus Christ, and 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 surrender to him. It's the same thing Paul said, the law. It wasn't, it wasn't given to us so that we would keep it, was given so that we would know what's right and what's wrong, but the law was given to us so that we'd throw our hands up and say, look, I can't sin. I can't stop sinning. Every time I try to stop sinning, I see another law. I know I'm guilty of sin. And then we get to the place where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? That's what mourning looks like as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, along with the Ten Commandments, drives us to Jesus because we're utterly helpless to do good things on our own. There is no one good, not one. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. People try to live according to the Sermon on the Mount or even the Ten Commandments. Boy, it's always a frustrating failure. Here's a question from Rodney. He said, when Isaiah was asked, who will go for us, who is the us? Rodney, uh, very clearly, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the triune God. One God manifest in three persons, but they're the ones who are the us. So Isaiah was asked, who will go for us? And his answer was, send me. I'll go. And by the way, I don't think he said that boldly. It wasn't like he was a faith and prosperity guy. It's like, I'll go, send me. It was, I think, very timid when he saw the throne of God and when he saw that he was undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. When he saw that, uh, he knew who he was. And so I think the send me was very timid. I'll go, but I need you. And that was his commission, of course, uh, into the ministry as a prophet. So it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patricia. Asked maybe with a little bit of an attitude. Patricia says, is missing church really that harmful? It seems like pastors try to scare you into going. Uh, It is harmful to miss church. And it's really that harmful because to miss church means that you can't use your spiritual gifts. To miss church means that you're not 
benefiting from the body of Christ. You know, Paul says there's some of us are feet and some of us are hands and some of us are voices and some of us are our our, our ears and uh, but we need one another. You know, if my head starts itching but my hand uh, won't go up there to scratch it, then it's going to be pretty miserable. Well, when we come to church and the body works together, it's like this beautiful symphony. If you've ever been to an, uh, a symphony uh, and you get there just a little bit early when the musicians are warming up, it sounds like a cacophony of noise. And then the conductor comes out and he raises his baton. And and then when he when he begins to, to hit the downbeat, everybody plays and every note is in perfect unity. That's what the body of Christ is like. So it's really that important. And when we are on our own, we're always in a dangerous place. Now, make no mistake, Patricia, it is the devil, the, the liar, who is trying to convince people that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's true, there are people that don't go to church who are going to be in heaven. But what they're not doing is living fruitful, fulfilling, satisfying, I'll use Jesus' word, abundant lives here on earth. I can't do what I do without the people here at Calvary Chapel. They can't do what they do without me. We need each other. That's the way it's supposed to work. And so missing church really is harmful. The idea that pastors try to scare people into going uh, is nonsense. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of pastors that are more concerned about empty seats than they ought to be. However... um, Make no mistake, when, when uh, I'll, I'll personalize this, uh, when I'm teaching a Bible study, I'm only talking to the people that are here. I'm only talking to the people that are here and those that are watching online. But even still, when you're watching online, it's not the same experience as it is when you're in the presence of the body and the Holy Spirit is working. So, you know, pastors don't try to scare anybody into going Uh, We want our churches to be full because that's where Christians need to be. And the fact that we live in a world, Western uh, culture, and more specifically here in the United States, uh, where Christians um, are objecting to having to go to church, uh, speaks only about how spiritually lazy we have become. And we're trying to justify to ourselves that it's okay. So, Patricia, if you're not in church, you need to be there. You need to be serving in your church. Because that's how God's Spirit works through you. And if we're not serving others, then what's the purpose? What's the purpose? There's none at all. So, Patricia, I hope that convinces your heart. Here's a question from Joy. She wants to know, what was the reason God confused the languages of the Tower of Babel and what language was spoken before they were confused? Um, Joy, I'll I'll do the the second one first. Uh, We don't know. We don't know. I had somebody say, well, they spoke Hebrew. And I said, no, they didn't. There wasn't any Jews at that time. Uh, Abraham uh, was the first Jew, and, and he wasn't a Jew by birth or ethnicity. Uh, he was he was a called out Jew uh, converted to Judaism, uh, and God just kind of started the whole Jewish movement. He's the father of the Jews. By the way, he's also the father of of uh, the faith for Christians and for Muslims. Um, so uh, we don't know what language was spoken before that, uh, but it's clear that they understood each other. Now that led to the reason that God confused the language uh, because he said, look, my spirit will not contend with man forever. I basically pronounced 120 years is all they got left. There's no end to the evil man will do. And so he confused them so they couldn't conspire with one another to rebel against God. So that's when people started separating. Um, Go to the Table of Nations in Genesis and that's when people started separating and going their own ways with the people that they understood. Now, we understand that makes sense, uh, but that wasn't a good thing. That was a, a curse. Uh, personally, Joy, I think that 
um, Acts chapter 2, when people say, we hear men praising God in our own languages, and it wasn't a language that the speakers understood. Uh, I think it was God announcing that, that the Holy Spirit's entrance into this world is a way to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel. So that was the reason God confused their languages. Um, He said there was no end to the evil that they will do if they communicate. So God just put a stop. God intervened. And, of course, we know um, that was after the flood. And um, they they were literally trying to waterproof the Tower of Babel uh, in case God ever tried to destroy the world with a flood again. God thought, my goodness, how evil can man be? And that was the, the case. Okay, got time for one more question. Uh, Mitchell says, what is the age of accountability or the age of consent? Uh, it's different, Mitchell, for everybody. Uh, we have a baptism coming up on on um, Sunday, um, and I will be baptizing some children um, we try to help make them understand or see if they understand at least a, a basic understanding of what baptism is and what it means. And I ask them why they want to do it. Um, I want to be sure it's not mom and dad saying, you got to get baptized, you got to be baptized. But the idea here is uh, we don't know. Uh, some of those kids, I, I, I tend to err on the side of grace, suffer not the little children to come unto me. Uh, God is planting um, seeds in those kids' hearts. Um, but some of them clearly know what they're doing. I've known kids that were accountable at four and five years old. I've known kids that were in their early teens that weren't accountable. Um, so we don't know. We're, we're, we're not told what the age of accountability is. God knows. God is just. And God is the one uh, who sorts out judgment or reward. So, Mitchell, I don't. there's no answer to that biblically. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the Day Day Edition show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.